All right, welcome back to season two of Invisible Machines. I'm joined right now uh, by Rob Wilson, as always, and then also by our executive producer, Elias Parker. We're all very excited to be together, uh, kicking off this this next season of Invisible Machines. And today we're talking with Adam Chayer, who is one of the co-creators of Siri, so certainly uh, very germane to the things we talk about on this podcast. But he's he's been working with conversational technology roughly the same amount of time that you have, Rob. So this conversation was yeah. really interesting because you guys have been looking at a lot of the same problems for the same amount of time. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. 93, he's... He, Siri uh, was a lot more capable than what Apple released. Uh, he he was already ahead on the concepts of, you know, it being a UI for our, for our software, um, for our apps, like email. So uh, he was ex- kind of describing some demos of, you know, being in an email client kind of interface that's like, hey, I want to send an email or I want to respond to this email, but I want to respond as in a phone call. Can you call them? And Siri knowing, you know, who to call based on the email address and the email. And like, so already like way ahead on, you know, app paradigm kind of disappearing, um, very much ahead on the whole uh, back end, you know, what, OpenAI now calls plugins, but in a far more advanced ways. And um, we had a further discussion uh, later that really kind of dived a lot more into that, the the concept of two-way um, and multi-turn interactions with systems on the back. Yeah, he had a lot to share. Um, there's there's a lot more to the story than, than just Siri, it turns out. And yeah, so I thought I thought it was interesting. It's crazy that it started there. It's also interesting that as he goes to Apple and Apple buys it, on one hand, conversational AI, like I, I think it was the start. And I mean, nothing did more for conversational AI than, than that release to Siri by Apple. He also explained how Steve Jobs really got it. He, you know, he kind of likened it to the single button. Um, it was this idea that like you could just do everything with one button if you had conversation working in the way you wanted it working. Um, and uh, and that the iPhone could be like a prediction machine that sort of predicted the next things and you just kind of click this button. And if we remember the old iPhones had a button on it. And so that the vision was really there. I think they really slimmed it down to roll it out and keep it super simple. And uh, I think it struggled to ever find its way to that original vision that that Adam had for what it could have been, you know, and what it will be probably with with Siri kind of evolving here. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting how it it hit so many users and became so pervasive so quickly. You could say on the same explosive layer as like ChatGPT did, um, but yet you could almost say that that popularity stifled its innovation because now so many folks were using it, and therefore every change and decision that they were going to make, that Apple was going to make, was going to have this massive impact, and so it sort of slowed down the progression and the evolution of it which I think is 
a really, really important thing to consider with conversational AI is that, you know, the more integral it becomes to getting work done or to being essential to our lives, the harder it's going to be to evolve it and, and experiment and innovate. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's kind of like why the Amazon UI still looks the way it does because every small change that they make to that UI has like potentially massive negative impacts if it goes wrong, like, you know, tens of millions of dollars. So they're like super, super careful about every decision they make, every design decision that they make, um, having to, you know, vet it because it's, it's going to be used so broadly. So I think he took a different path than I did in, in that, you know, nobody, Apple didn't come to me and try to buy one reach. So, um, I, I don't think, you know, they didn't really, I was sort of operating in the background and, um, I knew that if I came out too early that it would stifle innovation. So I was really, really nervous about, uh, getting out too early and, and getting it in too many hands because at some point that product becomes the property of its customers and the customers start dictating the roadmap. And if you had this grand vision, they tend to oftentimes, you know, derail that um, and kind of take it to what is more of a short-term win scenario. Um, and yeah. so I think, I think he, he after Siri, he went on to do... Um, Oh, Viv Labs. Vive? Yeah, Viv Labs. Yeah, and and then that was like sort of another another go at it. Um, that original vision even evolved further, and you know I think that's became if I got it right, I think it became Bixby on Samsung right. and <laughs> so forth. But um, yeah, it's super fascinating to think that these ideas began in 1993, and here we are, you know almost 30 years later <laughs> and and we're just beginning to see the, the early signs of it like nobody's even done that email demo that's explained except you know we we use it within one reach but it's not pervasive and and you kind of go wow like that's that's crazy that something could be technically capable and useful for so long and yet now 30 years later we're just beginning to uncover it uh even even in the hands of apple so there's a lot to explore there and unpack around what how we adopt technology we so focused on the invention of it but not that point of accessibility and and people's ability to kind of shift how they think we just get so stuck in our ways i think that's a fascinating concept as we start to look forward on ai and the speed of ai and the speed of ai adoption um just super super interesting conversation yeah and it's interesting that you mentioned this this idea that the more the technology becomes embedded in the user's life the harder it is to then innovate with it or experiment with it and, and that becomes a higher stakes thing right now too, right? With with everything happening so quickly. Like ChatGPT yeah. has already probably become embedded in some people's yeah. lives. 
uh, just by virtue of how many things they're using it to accomplish. It makes it more apparent that there's like this this race to deliver, like you need momentum, you need some adoption to to drive things forward. But then the second you have it in any sense, there's like this race to deliver on your vision to the completest extent before it, like sort of as you were saying, Rob, before the the user almost takes control in a way. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I, it's like anything, like the second you create it and you share it with the first person, you're starting to kind of give your creation over to the world um you know at some point it becomes the property of the public it's like you die and it becomes public domain you know i mean it's it's literally this journey of it's yours and so you share it with the first person mm -hmm. and then it then it goes on this journey of it you know being torn away from you and yeah. some people more violently than others as they try to hold on to it for as long as they can and control the creative direction of it but to the inevitable path that if it's successful, it d no longer belongs to you. If it's not successful, you get to own it mm. forever. It's this funny thing of if you want your art to be yours, make it ugly. Yeah. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it did make me immediately think of the, the conversations we've had about creativity and like about how art isn't complete until mm -hmm. someone uh, looks at it and makes it their own. Um, and yeah, and that we were thinking a... of is co-creation, and this is like another variation right. of co-creation, but one that comes with some some trade-offs. Exactly, and it's such a great example of Adams had this like vision so early for what this thing could do. He'd even had it capable of executing this vision, and then he gave it over to the world through Apple, and it became theirs, and it no longer was his that direction that vision you know was was stifled in in essence by the popularity of the app um and now he was very limited in the things he could do he had to go on and and almost create big speed just just to start trying those things out and, and, and probably a rinse and repeat on bixby you know again it's like the hope hope that it's not popular so you can <laughs> <laughs> so you can yeah. keep it going whereas in my case I just avoided going public for as long as I could uh, in hopes that it kind of crystallized to the vision enough that you couldn't unwind it um, so yeah it's sort of interesting yeah in, in a way um, I could almost say like just thinking about what the, what the listeners will grab onto in the conversation with Adam Chair here that in a way, had had I known more about the completeness of his vision bef before reaching out to him and, and him joining the conversation, we probably would have been even more excited than we already were for him to join the conversation. There was a lot of interesting thinking that I imagine a lot of listeners at the time that that both you, Rob, and and Adam were were experimenting and working through these things in those early days. Most people weren't thinking about it at all. And and now there's like enough of a relationship with these kinds of things that it, it becomes obvious some of what he was trying to do, how great it would have been, and to discover the gaps between what, what was envisioned and what was actually yeah. released is like a really fascinating stuff that's uncovered. What's that, also really fascinating when you talk to him is that, is that this, this went all the way to the top. Steve Jobs got it. 
Like he understood the vision. He, he was there. He imagined that, you know, access to all the applications on the iPhone would be through voice and Siri. Um, he saw that it even challenged the whole concept of application in general. Um, really saw it as a, as a game changing, um, interface, uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to think like what would have happened, you know, had yeah. had he been able to kind of carry through. But it was it's super clear to me in talking to Adam that that this was a shared vision and that he all the way to the top and they got it. Uh and they just again like suffered from their own its own popularity in terms of trying to like really move it forward but also we talked a bit about the fact that the applications itself and the application developers had to contribute to make their apps accessible to siri and that this was a chicken of the egg thing like you know they people weren't using siri to run their apps and so it was tough to get them to to build them so that Siri could run them. And so it, it really got to, to almost a very overly simplistic point where all you could do is just launch an app from Siri, which was, but again, the world just needed to catch up, not just the end user world, but the development community um, needed to catch up to this. So then there's also just the fun of like hearing about some of the examples where where Adam Chair and Steve Jobs did not see eye to eye, and so the 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 yeah. arguments that, that's that's fun to listen to. People are going to glom onto that as well. But yeah, I think there's some really unique takeaways. I, I think hopefully we got him talking about some things that he it seemed like that he hadn't really had the opportunity to share before. So that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I and mean, like I said, we had a follow up conversation for an article we're publishing for Harvard Business Review that kind of dug a little bit deeper and maybe we'll share that on the podcast once it comes out. Excellent. Well, for now, we could uh, get to our conversation with Adam. Awesome. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you. Um, You know, Rob and I, have had a lot of conversations on this podcast about kind of the power of voice technology to to really make technology an ally that that exists kind of in the background where you can leverage all its power by just asking it questions and then it can kind of show up multimodally to to present a video or a graphic or a you know a graph whatever whatever the situation dictates and then now you know we also have apple vision pro which was just sort of uh, uh featured this week and um to you, does that represent kind of like two different visions for our, our future interactions with machines where we have this idea of like machines could be almost invisible or we should strap them to our faces and go live somewhere else for a while? Like, yeah. are we are we making that choice or is it is it more like we're, we're entering an ecosystem where there's room for both? I wonder if you had thoughts on that. Well, I think the Apple Vision Pro is, is augmented reality, not just virtual reality. Yeah. So you know, the applications, we don't really know what the applications will be and how it will be used yet. But I think they're 
aspirations are to move between both. They have these environments that you can pretty much shut out the real world and just live in a virtual world. Um, but they, they have augmented situations where it's just your living room and you're adding one little thing into it, for instance, and kind of anywhere in between, even with this very unusual way for you're watching something, but someone walks into your real room and they almost pierce through the virtual part to let you know that they're there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where we end up. I think, you know, yesterday or yesterday's event was um, a start. It's provocative, but I, I think it'll actually take quite a while um, before we we embrace how to use this technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the hardware will need to change um, and that it's too heavy. The battery only lasts two and a half hours. Uh, right. It's too bulky and awkward. But um, I've heard that the screen is bright. Um, the resolution is incredible. And some of the user interface aspects are uh, amazing, including the use of voice and gesture without requiring additional controllers or hardware devices. I definitely think that is moving to a world where the interface becomes more invisible. Yeah, I did. That's a good point. The adoption point. Um, I I remember back. I was working on conversational AI when 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 Siri came out on Apple, and I was like, "It's over. This is it. We're all <laughs> going to talk to machines now this way." In a year or two, um, you know, I I had been saying it before, and now I was sure. Like it it just happened. And then what was your perception? I know I know there's like a lot of numbers on adoption and things like that, but what was your perception of adoption of voice as an interface to machines as that rolled out and and the re mixed reception that it got? Well, so a few things, few answers to that. One, I'm very proud of of what we did with with the first version of Siri, which was actually a startup that Apple bought, and the second version of Siri, which is the one that most people know that rolled out uh, embedded in iPhone devices. I think in both cases, we pushed forward the notion that voice uh, is an interface that can be important uh, and desirable. People wanted, you know, they engaged with this thing at crazy, crazy numbers. Um, and you know, m multiple orders of magnitude more than marketing projections, which created a, a an issue for us because, you know, literally speech recognition at the time, if you speak to it for 30 seconds, it would take one full CPU compute for 30 seconds. And so if you have a million people talking to it at the same time, that's a million computers you need sitting there. Right. And if you miss by a couple orders of magnitude, you know, you, you get into a situation. Um, so I'm proud with us advancing it. But one thing that's important in, to know is that, and, and I said this to Steve Jobs the very first day we met, uh, I said, many people look at voice and they think, oh, that'll just replace the keyboard. It'll replace the GUI, but that's not how it works at all. 
I said, if it's on the screen, the best way to manipulate it is to directly manipulate it with a mouse, with fingers. And if you think about iPhone, multi-touch really was a new transformative way of directly manipulating information with pinch and zoom and all of that. Um, but if it's off the screen, the best way to access it is by asking for it. And designers spend a lot of time to get the right information on those screen, the right information, the right actions. But screens are limited, no matter how big they are. They can't put everything the user would ever want. Right. Um, so the ultimate interface is the perfect synthesis of direct manipulation and being able to ask right. conversationally for something. And you want to be able to go seamlessly between the two. We actually built this into the very first version of Siri, and I'm sure that uh, this has been lost to history. I bet it doesn't work anymore. But imagine you're reading an email and you navigate to an email using mm -hmm. your finger, and you're looking at an email, and it says, hey, Adam, blah, 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 we should get together. Well, you could just hit the Siri button and say, call him, yeah. and it would pick up the context of right. what you were looking at on the screen, there's no call button. And at the time, email and contacts integration wasn't very good. So there wasn't, you couldn't even get to the contact easily from an email. You had to leave an app and search for it. And it was a big pain. Yeah, call yeah. him. Beautiful combination of, right. of, of manipulating what's on the screen and asking for what's not yeah. on the screen. For me, that that's the key of, of really a multimodal interaction. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot on the show with others, the scomorphic phase where we're, you know, really treating these machines like they're humans. Um, but but really, I think what you're pointing out is there's like an emerging pigeon language, human machine pigeon language that's in our future, which is a combination of linguistics and extra linguistics, uh, extra linguistics being like these, this either context driven, like you just mentioned, um, or driven by buttons and, and graphs and things that are in the Tufty world, like, you know, the ability to, to analyze lots of data, um, visually and knowing that, that that's a higher bandwidth, um, you know, data communication tool than, than words are. And, and there's a time and a place. And so since machines can conjure up drop down menus and maps and all kinds of, uh, dynamic components in seconds um, that, you know, we can't, so we don't use those things in our, in our text message conversations because we can't conjure that stuff up on the fly. But now, you know, with machines being able to draw things in, in, in a second and, and create uh, many applications, I think I'm hoping that we're going to see this transition quickly go from, you know, imagining we're talking to another person to imagining we're actually talking to a machine in a language that's this combo of l linguistics and extra linguistics and I'm in this show we get a lot of designers that watch and I'm really excited to see like the, the kind of pushing the envelope on what those extra linguistics components can be kind of to your point um it you saw an email but then it it had this awareness that you were reading it and um that's that's kind of a new way of thinking about application design right to think of contextual awareness uh 
a lot of designers just try to s spray everything on the screen and hope you can find it. Um, and this idea of contextual awareness and then, you know, drilling down to the, to the, you know, assumption, sort of predicting what you want before you want it. Right. Um, kind of, yeah, it's idea. interesting that that was like a, that you're, you're thinking of that as a footnote, Adam, because it, that feels like such an important functionality to have existed back then, because it's, it's, it's a lot of yeah. what we're striving toward today. Oh, absolutely. I thought it was essential and we baked that in so that everything you did, whether it was by through a, a graphical interface or through conversation, it all moved yeah. the same mental state. It had the same architecture that no matter how you input your request, um, it had the same backend right. experience. And that lets you do things through buttons or through speech or combinations of it seamlessly. And it was all part of the same conversation, every gesture, every click, uh, every command, but also every spoken utterance was all part of the same conversation. And that, that's something I think I haven't seen much of uh, since, since the early yeah. days of theory. Um, and I expect it's probably not even in Siri today. I don't, I don't think the designers were focusing on that. I, I, I speak for myself here when I say like to, to a lot of people out there, ChatGPT was like an explosion on the stage of conversational AI. But I feel like, you know, I've been watching this for years and I'm baffled by how long, to your point, how long this is taking to catch on. Um, but not not catch on in its in its simplistic way that we're all aware of, but in the way that you just described. Like back then, you were doing this. Like it must have frustrated you to some degree to be like, why, why, why are we? What is happening here? Why are we not pushing the envelope on this stuff? Why is it? Why is this moving so slowly? Uh, I have a mentor who created pretty much every important graphical concept that we use today. So he had the patent on the mouse. He did the first graphical user interfaces, the first text editors. Um, so pretty much everything we know of the personal computer experience. He did uh, the first hyperlinked multimedia distributed document framework. So everything wow. we know of the web and everything we know of collaboration, the first computer mediated video conferencing, the first real time shared document updates, and he had better versions of it in the 60s than we do today in many respects. His name was Doug Engelbart. And in mm -hmm. about 98, I was watching an interview with him, which was from eight, like 88, so about wow. 10 years old. Okay. And they said, wow, you know, this, your idea of the mouse and graphical <laughs> interfaces, that's, you know, gone everywhere, you know, the, the windows and, and, Apple, they all use that. But this idea of a multimedia distributed document system with, with hyperlinks, you know, why didn't people adopt it? And he, he goes, I don't know. I just don't understand it. <laughs> like, he showed it to them in 1968. Here we are in 88. Yeah, and, I know. They, and no one was using it. And meanwhile, I'm watching this in 98 as the internet is exploding around us. Right. And I'm getting chills because he's going, I don't know. I just don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that taught me um, things take time. Technology is exponential. He would say there's the human system and the tool system. Love tool that. systems are exponential. 
human systems are not, but the two need to co-evolve. And I've actually uh, was expecting, you said, why did it take so long for ChatGPT to, to break through? Okay. 10 years ago, I literally put a date um, on this prediction that this would be the year plus or minus one. Oh. So here's my theory. I call it the 10 plus timing theory. Okay. So the first interface revolution was the mouse and multiple windows around 84. Okay. If you go 10 plus one years forward, we now are ready for a new and complementary interface revolution. And mm -hmm. if we don't just compute on our desktop, now we have the web with hyperlinks and bookmarks and back buttons. Mm -hmm. 95. You go 10 plus two years later, and now you're not just chained to your desk to do, you know, to do your computing. Even though the mm -hmm. computing is now around the world, you can now pick up a smartphone, walk down the street while you're bumping into light posts and, and, and fiddling with this. So it freed you up. But 10 plus 2, 2007 was when the iPhone, and then the following year, um, 2008. So I said, okay, 10 plus 3 will be the next major interface revolution. And 10 years ago, I said it will be the conversational assistant. So Siri was the, the start, but it wasn't at paradigm scales. Uh, the whole idea of Siri was that you could open it up to third parties, just like you do the web, just like you do apps, in order for it to become ubiquitous, every single developer in the world, every industry needs to be able to program to it. And that was the whole idea with Siri, but I knew it would take time for adoption uh, to go out. And so after uh, Siri, I left Apple after about three years uh, and started a new company called Viv Labs, which was all about orchestrating and planning and reasoning to compose multiple services from third-party developers. Mm -hmm. So you could make any request and it would orchestrate the flow across different apps and any third-party developer could create a voice tools. You can actually see the fruits of our labor. Uh, this was sold to Samsung. They branded it for a while under Bixby. If you go to mm -hmm. bixbydevelopers.com, you will see the most sophisticated orchestration on the services side. So I was trying to create this, um, but I said between 20, you know, we have 2008 plus 13, 10 plus three. At that point, there will be the rise of the conversational assistant. It will become a paradigm as important as the web and mobile. And right on schedule, November 30th, <laughs> 2000, 2000, you know, right around there. First, we had GPT-3, and then shortly after, uh, so that was June 2020, um, and then um, November 2022. So within a year, we were spot on. And the last, my next prediction uh, is, okay, we did 10 plus, so we're around uh, 2021. I said the next major interface paradigm will be 10 plus four years after that. So 2035, okay. and I predict it will be augmented reality. So yesterday's mm. Apple announcement, in a sense, is, is Siri. like Siri. <laughs> it, it's desirable. It shows the provocative uh -huh. kind of feel. But yep. Siri, even Siri today, is still not open yeah. and able to do all the things we want it to do. 
Um, it's the exact same with this augmented reality glasses we saw. It, you know, it'll be available soon. It has elements that are provocative, but to fully roll it out and have mass adoption, 2035 yeah. was my prediction. Wow. Yeah, and you would think by then too, you could have the augmented reality wouldn't require headgear. You know, you could have projections and things like that. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen the the movie Her. Uh, it's kind of a touchstone for us on this podcast because it it really kind of brings to life this this orchestration that we're kind of talking about where, you know, the Samantha, the assistant that he acquires isn't an app, it's an operating system. And it can it communicates through his uh, earbud, yeah. it can show him things on his little phone-like device. And, and that was a big camera. deal for me. I, I don't know for yeah. you, but for me, the fact that they made it an OS and not an app, that was like... Yeah. Super interesting because I've always seen it as the UI for all of our software, not another app on the phone or on our devices. Um, anyway, I yeah. didn't mean to cut you off, Josh, but I just wanted to point out, like to me, I was I was looking at the writer, like, wow, that's it's interesting they chose to make it an OS and not just an app, because because that tends to be how it's relegated as an app. Yeah. Yeah. And that OS becomes ubiquitous in his life. I, I would say the more I've kind of looked at it um, in the light of what we've seen with GT GPT is that he does, you know, the, the OS operates very much like a human. It interacts with him as though it were human. And as a consequence, he kind of falls in love with it. So, so that might be, I wouldn't say a misstep in a storytelling sense, but in, in the way that we think about how this technology could develop more responsibly, it seems like some sort of uh, pigeon language might be a step in that direction so that people aren't mistaking these machines for humans and they're they're thinking of them more as a, as a as a system that they're interacting with and not a person with a personality yeah uh, so a couple of comments on that so i did see the movie or and i got to spend a little time with spike jones and talk to him about it and that was pretty cool um i think the you're right that the idea of an os is much more in line with what I've always intended Siri to be. The, the, my first version of Siri was 30 years ago. It was an OS. Yeah. Um, and and the whole idea of, we, we started as a free app in the App Store, but it, it had an extensible set of services that it would coordinate and, and uh, manage. And so it wasn't, the assistant shouldn't be about anything in particular, it should be the OS with all knowledge, all capabilities, all brands can can kind of plug into and it'll help you orchestrate. So I, I do think that was uh, absolutely perfect. Um, I, I actually think that we're not going towards pidgin language. So, uh, you know, ChatGPT already is able to, you know, pass the Turing test, I think, by many measures. It can play roles and tell stories and and simulate all sorts of things, personality, empathy, etc. Uh, there's, there's some really interesting talks about some of the dangers of AI by, for example, the, the two guys who did the Social Dilemma movie. They have a really interesting talk these days called The AI Dilemma, where one of the things they say is that there's, it used to be that for social media, it was a, a race to get your attention. Everything was about attention. What the whole um, aspect 
was how do we keep them clicking and engaged uh -huh. more? And every, all of the AI in the world was funneled to how can I produce the most engaging and addicting information. With large language models and generative AI, they say that the new race will be the race to intimacy. And by right. intimacy, it is, it's, it's engaging and trusting, becoming, you know, I won't say going all the way to falling in love with, but no connecting, doubt. trusting, believing, and interacting with this, this thing. And there, it's, a, it's a danger. And the one thing I can say is that even though Siri was so primitive, uh, in many ways, uh, it was better in many ways, but let's, from the language understanding component, quite primitive compared to the generative AI of today, we could already see people's desire to connect, right? People, you know, could use Siri to do function, get me the weather, set a timer, play a song, but people also asked Siri questions, you know, do you love me? Was the number one most popular question people would ask this thing. Wow. It's, it's obviously a machine. It doesn't understand. <laughs> right. But people want to project uh, this, you know. So, and that's one of the reasons I think Siri went viral in the early days. It wasn't yeah, for its it functionality um, entirely. It was also because of people's desires to connect and the fact that we had... Um, programmed in, in pretty crude ways at the time, responses that made people feel, not that it was human, but that it it connected with me. It connected with me. It, um. it, 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 it was more than just, just a machine. So there is, I think, an inherent desire for people to connect on a social level with our programs. And if you give mm -hmm. them a little bit, it, it, there's a danger there too, yeah. but it's for the designers on this this podcast definitely something to think about. What did you learn from that? Did you like? Was there any sort of? Did you back off on certain things or change certain things or was there any sort of overarching kind of guidelines that came out of watching how people interacted in those first days and going, okay, um, uh, let's. I mean, the the nice thing about the technology then is. It's sort of, in a way, it was it was more crude. In a way, it was more complex, right? <laughs> like on the back end, there's a lot more going on than is going on in in, in today's LLMs. Um, to to get it to do a lot less, um, and so, but you did have more control over specifically what it was going to say. Less, you know, you didn't have this hallucination problem. Um, so so you had that control, which kind of probably prompted a lot of internal discussions about what should it say uh, when 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 this happens and, and when someone says X or Y. And uh, did that evolve? Did you guys learn stuff from that? Um, did you did, did you back off from I love you too to, hey, I'm just a Siri? <laughs> <laughs> so um, when we first started the company, Siri, we had long discussions on what do we want this to be? And our, um, you know, we, we go, are we a chatbot? Should it have uh, an avatar or some physical persona? You know, what, what should its role be? 
Is it about function or is it about social or both or what's the balance? So where we landed on that discussion was I didn't think that number one people wanted to chat inanely to these things, you mm-hmm. know, for long ways. Even though there was evidence that others had done it, there there were some, you know, China, uh, Chinese uh, assistants who had huge engagement. Shao um, Ice, I believe one was right. called. And, yeah. and then earlier, around 2000, there was in the U.S. something called Smarter Child by Active Buddy. Oh, yeah, which was I remember that. Wow. Thing. So there's some evidence people enjoy chatting. Bummer. But we were like, no, we're going to be about helping people get things done. Bummer. Siri is a do engine. And we used to say, if you want to get a web page, go to a search engine. If you want to get something done, go to our do engine. But we had the idea because we were using voice and conversation as one of the accelerators, that gave us license to sprinkle in what we called surprise and delight or delight nuggets. And so we could say, if someone says, what's the weather tomorrow, we can, it'll respond um, you know, looks rainy and 45 degrees, pause, don't forget your galoshes. <laughs> and it would give you a little more that would make you smile. That would be, you know, a little bit right. more human. So the original idea was to function first, but sprinkle in uh, a little bit of delight nuggets that because we're having a human-like interaction, making it a little bit more pleasant and human and friendly would be a, a good thing. Yeah. Now, of course, at one point, we got to a place where people had asked the questions that were not functional, like, do you love me? Or, you know, when oh, were no. you born? Or all of these, are you an employee of Apple? All of these kinds of things. So we had to develop a backstory that, that answered these questions. Is Siri male or female or neither? Is it a machine, a human, uh, or other? Is it um, an Apple employee, an Apple fan, boy or girl, or other? You know, what's mm-hmm. what are all these relationships? And we had to make sure everything was consistent with that backstory and persona. So that was one learning of it. To your point on um, could we control everything that happened? In uh, we couldn't um, actually. And in the same way that New York Times reporters are staying up late at night to work with ChatGPT to get it to say horrible things, um, there were reporters for Siri finding the good things and going on late night TV to say, let me show you the coolest thing that I got Siri to do now, but also the bad things, right? I remember, you know, someone asked, what's the capital of Palestine? And because of the data source it was using, it said the capital of Palestine is. Oh, got it. And it was not a UN, you know, it, there, right. were, there are a million little controversial topics, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, you know, find that you could phrase things. And because our language understanding was imperfect, if you phrased it just right, like maybe you'd say find abortion centers near me uh, and it could do it. But you could phrase it in a way where we wouldn't understand everything and latch on to abortion centers or whatever. I'm just picking right. that as a topic, yeah. controversial topic. And because of the phrasing and our imperfect understanding, you could make it look horrendous. Got it. Like, is it recommending abortions or whatever, right? Right, right. And then it becomes a story. So I guess one learning is you're not going to be able to anticipate all the uses that, that, of course, there's money to be made and stories to be printed, 
by finding the best and the worst. In the middle, no one cares. Um, so that for me feels very similar that, you know, what I'm seeing, uh, with chat GPT, um, and with what we went through with Siri. How did Apple, um, handle the fact that this technology was sort of any, anytime you introduce a new technology, especially like this, it's more unpredictable, less, you know, less controlled, uh, offers a lot more risk. And when you get into large enterprises, you know, they're sort of pretty risk adverse and, um, and they don't like, they don't like the unknowns, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, why innovation is, is sort of tough to pull off, right? Because innovation and, and risk adversity don't tend to go well together. Um, but, but in this paradigm, there's just no way, you know, to not take some risk. You, you just, like you said, you didn't know where it was going to go. Um, did it cause them to back off or were you like a, you know, were you like a, a uh, a sort of weird animal in the zoo there or <laughs> oh we we absolutely were first of all if you you know siri was a server side technology right and because it needed to know every business name every like hue every map direction every like there were huge huge data sets it's not something you could put in your phone mm-hmm. and it only had one button but it had an open ended once you hit that button, you could say a user might say anything. Right. So it was very and 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 despite that, we reported into the iOS group, the people who made the phone with apps. And so the mindset, you know, of like testing an app, you just go to each button and you go to each field and you put in different values and you, there there are ways to have to test a nice controlled it's a finite thing. yeah number of combos yeah. But but when you have just one inch, one button and you can say anything, it's much harder to test. And so I think we were within Apple at that time, um, an unusual animal. And it w- there was challenges when when Siri came out, you know, it went viral. There was the good. There was the bad, you know, people doing things. There was the the uh, scale when you when you divide, uh, create apps on your phone, you don't have to worry about server co- you know server right. issues and going down. Um, so it was it was an interesting time. I, I'm I'm proud of our team, Siri team, and of Apple, and that we kind of fought our way through it despite yeah. coming from different perspectives and and different requirements and experiences. You know, we, we it wasn't perfectly smooth, but we got through it. And when I came out of it, um, you know, we had solved the scale issues. We had come to terms with some of the personality issues, which was surprising to Apple in many ways. Um, and, you know, we're able to handle a lot of the, the, um, the positive and the negative. And then I was like, this is going to be great. People are using it. People like it. I said, version two of Siri will be the most important software ever created because obviously the next step would be to open it up an app store, right? Just like they did with the iPhone, start with 10 great apps or whatever it was, open up an app store. It changed everything. That's what I thought we could do with Siri. Uh, Unfortunately, we never quite got there. Yeah, I... You mentioned... um, I was just going to say, I... I think that place, you know, I think you were fortunate in that you were in a company that, you know, 
was pretty advanced in sort of how they approach innovation. But it must be interesting to you to now see that, you know, many enterprises now are considering a conversational interface and and then those teams within those companies now are facing the same kind of challenges that you know the the being a weird animal where they have their <laughs> IT departments just like you know OS and and then they've got their their test scripts and their regression testing and like everything can be known for the most part and and then out it goes and when something doesn't work right they kind of drop into that software paradigm and I think it's going to be harder for a lot of these guys because they they're not in Apple they're in you know some some enterprise company that does something completely different like you know sells widgets and they're going to try to approach this and 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 try to apply that same software paradigm how different do you think the paradigm is in terms of how to operate a team that creates apps versus operating a team that creates conversational experiences? I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I, I feel like because large language models and generative AI is such an important technology, every business and every industry is going to have to broach how do they deal with this thing? How do they integrate this thing? How does it change their business? And it's just like when the web came out, same kind of thing or apps, do, you know, do we go, do we create a mobile app or a mobile website or don't we, are people going to use these phones anyway or use this web anyway? Should I get rid of our, our old catalogs that we used to just mail out, you know, and build one of these newfangled websites? So it's that important that every business, every industry is going to have to address it head on. I think you're right that the skill sets, the animal that you're dealing with is very different than with most software. For one thing, it's, um, it's not deterministic, right? Yeah. If you, you, you hit the refresh button, it'll give you a different answer <laughs> every time, yeah. right? And much of the time, it'll be a good answer. But sometimes it'll be great and sometimes it'll be bad. And that's just the, you know, there's, it's a machine learned probabilistic statistical system that has this parameter called temperature, which you can adjust yeah. that, that even when you push it up higher, that's not necessarily what you want. You don't get better results by having less randomness. You get better results by having more. Mm -hmm. but that's a very difficult thing to control yeah. um, and address. So. It's that's why I think we've got 10 plus three or four years before the next paradigm, because it's going to take us that long to kind of squeeze out, you know, to, to get comfortable with this thing. I mean, yeah. think of the web when it first started versus the web 10 years later, very, very different experiences and approaches. Um, it, this is going to be the same. It's going to take time. Uh, but every company has to start working and addressing it now because you, you, you can't ignore the web. You can't ignore mobile. Right. You're not going to be able to ignore this. And one thing that hits me is, and, and I don't know if you experienced this, but people are far more forgiving of search engines than they are of conversational UIs. So if they search something 
and it comes up, you know, if they find that heinous thing that they searched for, um, nobody seems to go to search engines and say, hey, this thing, this thing is terrible. But yet when they manipulate Siri or some conversational AI into saying some heinous thing, everybody's like, oh my God, you know, and, and I, I contribute that, I attribute that mostly to the anthropomorphic, you know, nature of these devices. But, um, but yeah, it just seems like there's a double standard. And I wonder if you think that's going to kind of fade and people are going to be more forgiving of the mistakes or are we just going to have to fix, fix these things to make them almost perfect? Um, so you're spot on. It has to do with the agency and the anthropomorphism uh, of these systems. Um, people would expect with a search engine, if they don't get the result they want, they think it's their fault. But... Oh, I need to type in better keywords. I didn't, you know, Google has everything, but it's up to me. It's my job to phrase it in the best way to get what I need. So it's my fault. So yeah, there's no blame put on a search engine. However, just by moving slightly over to this, now you have an anthropomorphic assistant. Now all blame, I sh you know, to a, a human, I can say anything and it needs to respond well at some level, right? And it's not my fault if I ask for something and I don't get a good response, it's their fault. No, so no. There, this blame and, and fault um, it's definitely one of the negatives. There are positives, like I already alluded to, people want to love and connect with software. Having that agency and anthropomorphism, people can love this thing, but if it doesn't live up to the promise, they can turn on it. Remember uh, the paperclip, Clippy, <laughs> Microsoft, yep. the first ever viral video was an I hate Clippy uh, video. It's true. Way, way before mass distribution of videos. So people can love and hate, but the blame is put on this anthropomorphic uh, thing. Now, what's remarkable about ChatGPT is it's, you know, whereas previous systems have been relatively brittle, you know, they work if you stay in domain, but if you go outside of the domain, they fall down hard. Um, and no one knows where the boundaries are. That's the problem with Siri and Alexa and all of these. It does some things, it doesn't do other things, but there's no way to see what's the difference. You know, if I say, find me a French restaurant or how many hairs are there on a leg of a grasshopper, one of those is in scope and one of them isn't. But why, to the user, they're the same. Why yeah. should one work and not both? So, um, the, the remarkable thing about ChatGPT is it's much more graceful and much broader on the set of things that it can do. It responds much more gracefully. So I do think from a language understanding point, for the first time, we now have technology that will be more forgiving and less brittle on, on its, in its responses give you something credible for no matter what you ask. Um, you know, it may be wrong, it may be inaccurate, but it'll at least sound right. credible um, and not fall down as poorly as before. Yeah, you mentioned something I think super challenging 
which is the boundaries, right? And, and understanding the boundaries and especially when the boundaries are moving. Right. So discovery must have been a lot of conversations. Like we added a new capability. How does anyone know? And, and when someone tried it and it didn't work before, how do they now trust that it will work? Um, you know, trying to make people, the one nice thing about a graphical UI is you can at least scan and, and see it can, it, it has these visual cues as to what it can do and what it can't do those boundaries, as you called it. But with these, uh, devices, you know, being, being, you know, just pure in this pure, pure language form, it's really hard to discover new things and new capabilities. Um, I'm sure you guys have a lot of talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Unfortunately, there wasn't enough talk about this, in my view, in the early days of Siri. We had so many things to do. Uh, Steve Jobs and I argued and clashed on lots and lots of design topics. He always won, which was perfect. (laughs) And I love the way that it went. Every discussion was Adam... I've heard you, I've listened, I've thought about what your points, we're going to go in this direction and here's why. Sometimes it went my way, sometimes it didn't. So one area where we we fought and um, it went uh, uh, you know, his way and I look back and say, you know, he was right, was this example you brought up earlier with visually, um, you can consume so much more so much information, so much faster. So in my view, and in the first version of Siri, there was no text-to-speech. You could just, it was speech in, text out, because you could just read it with your eyes. Why do I want a text-to-speech droning on, mm-hmm. reading things I can already see? Not adding any value. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. People love the voice experience. Steve was right on that one. However, at one point where we fought, disagreed mightily, and I look back and I say, you know what? I still think I was right. It was around discovery. Mm-hmm. And the original version of Siri had high 90s percentile accuracy on task completion rate. High 90s, That's the original amazing. version. Why? We had terrible speech recognition. This was 2008, 9, 10. We had terrible natural language understanding. We didn't have all the data, et cetera. And we still had high accuracy. Why? because we funneled people into the tasks that they knew. And I often say speech is an advanced modality. And what I mean by that is on any new system, say I know Siri can do, you know, I don't know what Siri is. I'm a complete novice. A browse experience is important for novice. Oh, it has something that can do restaurants and movies and I can call a cab and get sports scores, great. You browse through a menu, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's the intermediate. Well, I know it does restaurants, but I, I'm fuzzy on some of the details. I haven't used it for a while. Can I say find a French restaurant with a view of uh, the Bay Bridge? I don't, I'm not sure. I know mm-hmm. it can do restaurants, but what are the parameters it right. knows about restaurants? Intermediate. And speech is perfect for once I know that it can say find a French restaurant for four people tomorrow night. And I've done that by browsing or by uh, graphical means. And now I'm confident speech is the fastest way to get there. Now I can just say it and I know I will be right. So the original Siri app had this thing called semantic autocomplete. 
that it wasn't a dictionary of all the, you, you weren't browsing and reading documentation. You could, with just a few taps, it, it would both expand your understanding of what the system could do and contract you to your task. So say you wanted to find a romantic comedy uh, playing near you. You type R-O, there would be an autocomplete that would show rodeos and tea right. rooms and romantic comedy. And you're like, and you'd go, oh, interesting, rodeo. I didn't know that Siri knew about rodeos. But you'd click the romantic comedy and then it would pivot and say romantic comedy starring this actor, rated this rating, uh, playing near here. And so it turned into, you'd go R-O, it would show you the options, you'd go click, click, click. And in just three or four clicks, you had composed a sentence, romantic comedy starring Tom Cruise, you know, tomorrow. And submit. So it helped you get to the task. And meanwhile, your your brain is training on the model of what the parameters are, what the systems are, both what you are doing on your task, but also rodeos and tea rooms. And so in this way, now you could pick it up and say, get me a romantic comedy starring Tom Hanks, right? Because I know it can do that. I have a model. And I believe this was so important, this, this very clever way of solving the beginner, intermediate, and expert paths. And of course, you're going to be expert in some domains, intermediate in others, and complete novice in third. So it needs to be seamless. We had solved that, I thought, beautifully with the original Siri. I wanted that in the Apple Siri. Steve said, no, 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 no. We'll just have commercials and we'll just tell them what they can say. But of course, they got celebrities doing the most cool, crazy queries. <laughs> and people would interpolate. They'd hear this one and this one and this one. They would kind of draw a circle in their mind. But of course, it wasn't a circle. It's a star or some weird shape with lots of things that don't work. So that's when I, I feel that because I lost that argument with Steve, we lost that in voice interfaces forever. I have never seen uh, another voice assistant experience that had as good an experience as the original Siri. I feel it got lost to history and oh, discovery is an unsolved problem. And until large language models, which has been trained on, on everything, on a breath, uh, it was the thing holding back voice assistance um, to date. That one argument I had with Steve, and and um, but now we have a new approach for it, and yeah. now there will be other problems to solve. Yeah, but it's an interesting problem. I think discovery is grossly underestimated as as an issue to face, and um, I I I know you were in 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 an impossible situation in terms of like um, being able to have human in the loop as a part of it. But one of the things we advocate heavily is, you know, if you combine the, the ways humans can contact you, uh, especially as a company uh, to one gate, you know, one phone number, one, and, and that that gate gets to your assistant in, 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 in an automated way, but also to a human, then it takes the burden off of the user to know what is possible or not possible within the automation because if it's not possible with the automation, it just goes to human. And um, and so you don't have to think about it, right? You just you just know that if you want to talk to, if you want to get something done, this is the one and only place. 
but but we see a lot of folks implementing it in silos like they do right so it's the chatbot over here but oh over here you got a call to talk to a human um and it, it kind of like missing the opportunity to solve this super super challenging and critical problem of discovery if if now humans just slowly uh, do less and and automation takes on more and more, you know, you don't need to educate people or run commercials to tell them that it, it can now reset your password for you. It doesn't need a human to do it. You just do it. Um, yeah. yeah. And those, those ideas kind of feed into that notion you brought up earlier, Adam, of like, of, of whether it's a great goal or not, but trying to strive towards creating intimacy instead of get, like just gathering attention because you have, the conversational nature of these interfaces just throws that door to intimacy wide open because I think because of anthropomorphism and I think people are so eager to interact with something that talks back to them. But then you also have the other piece of intimacy there would be personalization and being able to establish context, which, you know, discovery is a huge part of. But now I guess maybe it touches back on VivLab stuff too. It's like, what if there are these open ecosystem and open architectures where you can connect these experiences across you know, well, different pieces of software, different pieces of technology. Yeah. Yeah. With, with our Viv approach, you would literally construct your virtual experience, just like you do your mobile experience. You would go find the brands you know and trust and you'd download them on your app. You know, there are millions of apps in the app store, but probably only a hundred or 200 on your phone. Um, that was kind of our model, our vision for how you would get the personalization that you would want. You would go download capsules, create your your assistant who would be able to help you across all of those functionalities that you care about. And every person would download, of course, a, a slightly different set. And with the power of language, you can not only task individual capsules or individual services or brands, but you can make requests that go across different services and this this dynamic composition. Viv, Viv was the first voice assistant that I've ever heard of that really did planning and composition across independently developed services, um, kind of much in the way that uh, GPT now takes all this knowledge and it's, it's doing some planning and reasoning and composing, right? That's one of the reasons it's, it's so powerful and engaging. However, I often say AI is knowing plus doing, and you want both. I want my system to know things and to be able to help me do things, but the platforms and technologies are quite different, right? One deals where you build a big index and a cache and you're trying to look up, retrieve, or reason across that cached index. The other is dealing with live web services, actions, transactions, side effects. It's, it's a very different kind of approach um, and if we talk about where does ChatGPT and similar um, large language models need to go, I think they've come close to solving the knowing side. Still has problems with hallucinations, accuracy, not being able to say, I'm not sure, I don't know. Like there's no gradation of I don't know. There's, it's, it, it's confident in everything. Yeah. Uh, but so that needs to get better. But other than that, pretty darn good. But on the doing side, if we've seen what they've done with uh, the plugin system, mm -hmm. it's it's so nascent and poorly thought through. 
I agree. Uh, that's another reason why I think it will take 10, 13 years for us to fully get what we want, which is uh, coordinated compositional access across uh, web services that can act and transact. And I, I think we're pretty far from that uh, today. What do you think about uh, the, so I, I've, you know, said in, we wrote in the book, et cetera, you know, and I've believed this for a long time that the, again, I'm not like you, I'm, I'm optimistic. I always think it's right around the corner <laughs> and it's not, and I'm wrong. Um, I'm not, but somehow that doesn't stop me from being the optimist. But I keep thinking, you know, we're at the end of APIs. Like, why aren't machines just talking to each other in natural language? We don't need to, you know, analyze uh, JSON objects. And, you know, I, I expect that if it's if it's not me, because I find time this weekend to do it, it's going to be somebody else who just shows, you know, ChatGPT that talks to a plugin, talking to another ChatGPT with a plugin, and everybody goes, oh, wait, that's the end of JSON and APIs as we know them. You know, and and now now, you know, it can explore functionality out there for you and then connect in natural language. Um, and I'm sure you, you, you guys have talked extensively about that idea. Um, well, you I, need... I don't know how optimistic you were there. <laughs> I'm very optimistic. I just have a long term scale. Remember, this is literally the 30th year I've been building conversational assistance. I have some hope that we'll get to the vision. Just, I mean, I just had a very simple picture of what I wanted and how it would work, and I built it in 1993, the year before I saw a web browser. So I'm like, I, why can't we just do this at scale? Well, it's complicated and hard for many reasons. I have some hope and some optimism that we will get there, um, you know, in my lifetime, which would be an achievement. You know, if I could say, yes, we're there, I'd feel this like satisfaction, <laughs> right? Yeah. But um, it's going to be a while. You know, language is not great for everything, right? Uh -huh. And you're going to notice as you start to play with these GPT, it's not that great an experience when you get into certain types of things that require data and actions and transactions. I, I still bring up the the Viv demos and Bixby demos and say, here is take the simplest use cases. You can't do this with ChatGPT yet on the doing side because you need to manipulate and work yeah. with data, right? So APIs and structure are still going to be important. That said, language as an input mechanism, returning structured output, um, you know, I think yeah. we'll see more of that. But remember, many times you need to make a request and you need a prompt back, right? You're missing mm -hmm. some information or you need a clarification. So now APIs need to have a whole forward, backward, conversational experience wrapped around them. Yeah. Um, maybe you can bang it out this weekend, but there's some complexity <laughs> uh, that I think it'll take take a while. I, I still think APIs are going to exist for uh, uh, some time yet. Yeah. Well, Adam, yeah, we could we could probably uh, go on on these conversations for quite a while, but uh, I think. Uh, I think our time with you is up oh, for the day. Yeah, but that's we right. Would, uh, <laughs> that we would, uh, fast. Yeah, we'd love to continue this conversation another time if you're able. Well, and uh, we really yeah. thank yeah. you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Thanks again for hanging out with us here on Invisible Machines. 
Really, really excited to be uh, headed into season two of this podcast. It's been a delight creating it and hosting all these amazing guests. And of course, it wouldn't be possible without a lot of work uh, from the team at UX Magazine, specifically Kate Timchenko, and then also the marketing team at OneReach AI. Uh, Elias Parker and Natalie Budziak are instrumental in making this podcast, uh, as is Michael Litvinoff, our video editor, who makes it look and sound wonderful. And you should definitely subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes of this podcast and also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. And next week, we have a really special episode for you. We have a conversation with Jonathan Frankel, who is the chief scientist at Mosaic ML. If you've been following uh, the space recently, uh, Mosaic ML was acquired by Databricks for $1.3 billion. We recorded this conversation uh, before that acquisition, but it is still a fascinating talk about, uh, specifically about LLMs and the different ways you can train them and how it requires uh, sort of an element of mixology. Uh, it's a really fun conversation. Jonathan was a delight to talk to, and I really am excited to share it with you next week right here on Invisible Machines. Mm -hmm.